welcome again to our, to our service this morning. Uh, some of you know that it's been an eventful week for us. We had some rain, we had some thunder, we had some lightning, and we actually had no roof on this building when all of that was happening. And if you walk upstairs, you will see what looks like has been through a hurricane. And uh, all the ceiling tiles are down, and that's why we have the big fan units out there. We've been dehumidifying. Is it dehumidifying, Smitty? Is that what we used to call it? Yeah. We've had all that kind of stuff happening this week, and yet ministry has gone forth here on the campus. We've moved classrooms around. We move offices around, and we're all scrunched together. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing because we're getting to know each other better. We're extending grace to one another. The kids, of course, are just like, this is the coolest thing. We can't be in our classroom. And uh, it's just so cool to see how God continues to provide and allows us to roll with the punches and all of that. And we don't know how God is going to really end up working through all of this, but we're already seeing some signs of God doing some good things among us relationally, and we trust that he's going to take care of all the different insurance, financial, rebuilding stuff, all that's going to come out just fine. Maybe it'll be better than it was before. Who knows? So we thank God. We continue to trust him. And uh, these things happen all the time, don't they? They happen in our lives. We experience these disruptions, and uh, it's just awesome to watch God glorify himself through them. Uh, This morning... We are talking about justice. Actually, we're talking about injustice this morning. And I found this quote from Henry David Thoreau. Justice is sweet and musical. Amen? Sweet and musical, but injustice is harsh and discordant. We don't like injustice, do we? We hate injustice. From the very first, he started it, she started it, argument that our parents shut down or our teachers shut down to the courts failing to give the guilty party the justice that they deserve or what we think that we deserve. We hate injustice. We hate it when people don't realize how wronged we have been, right? When I'm out there driving on the freeway, and I, and I say, did you see that? Did you see that? And my passenger says, Dad, it was your fault. <laughs> I don't like that. I hate that. I don't like it when the, the ref makes the wrong call. I don't like it when, when sleazy, undeserving people are the ones living the posh lifestyle. I don't like it when the ones who have been taken advantage of, they're the ones who seem to receive all of the consequences. And then the advantage takers, they seem to have no consequences. They get off scot-free. I hate injustice. And as we look at Mark chapter 15, what we see, what we have before us this morning, is injustice. It's everywhere. Almost everywhere we look in these first 15 chapters of the 15th book of the Gospel of Mark, we see people who are unjust. They either don't care about justice or they are actually perpetuating injustice here. Let's take a look at it together. Would you open your Bibles or your apps or whatever it is that you have to Mark chapter 15? And would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Mark chapter 15, first 15 verses, says this, And as soon as it was morning, 
the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate again said to him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Verse 6, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It's hard to read this passage and not get a sense that serious injustice is going on. It's upsetting. It's alarming. But what what is it that we should do with it? What, What is the takeaway from this passage for us? Are we supposed to allow ourselves to get all fired up? so that we can identify those who are really to blame and stand up and resist this kind of injustice when we see it in our world? Is that the takeaway for us, maybe? Should we be doing what we so often do, and and, and that is gather up the evidence, sift through it, examine the motives of people, and determine who is ultimately to blame, because someone needs to be responsible, somebody needs to pay for this. Or, because this should be a big history lesson here, it's just a big FYI, it's just one of those things where you look back and it kind of informs the way things are today. There are several different players in this passage. Maybe what we should do is just identify those key players, see what's going on with them, and see where that leads us. That's actually the course I'd like to take this morning. Just kind of take a, take a look. What, what's, what's really going on here? Who's, who's, who are the players here? Well, there's the religious leaders, right? There's the chief priests, there's the elders, there's the scribes, there's the council. There's Pilate, the governor. There's the crowd out there. There's a criminal named Barabbas. And then there's Jesus. We're just, we'll just kind of look at these one at a time this morning. And we'll see where it leads us. First of all, we have those religious leaders. Verse 1 said, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, delivered him over to Pilate. So after they arrested Jesus in the garden, they escort him over to the house of this man named Annas. He's the, one of the former high priests. There had actually been several high priests after him. The current sitting high priest, Caiaphas, uh, Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Why take Jesus over to Annas? Well, Annas was like the priest of priests. 
He was the guy who maybe wasn't sitting in the official position of authority any longer, but everybody looked to him. He was the, the wise sage, the one that you would go to to get advice, or the one that you would go to who really everybody respected, and what this guy said or what this guy thought, well, that was going to impact what everyone else thought. And so if you wanted everyone to get on board with what you wanted to see happen, well, you go to Annas, get Annas to buy in, everyone else is going to buy in. He had that wisdom. He had that expertise to get things rolling in the right direction. After they take Jesus to Annas, they take him over to Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin. And that's where they start struggling to find anything that would stick on Jesus. There's all kinds of conflicting testimonies. And we read about that last week. Uh, Mark 14, 56. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And they tried to get Jesus riled. They tried to get him to respond. Maybe if he starts answering questions, maybe he's going to trip himself up. Maybe he's going to say something that's contradictory to something he said in the past. Or maybe he's going to incriminate himself. But verse 61 tells us he remained silent and made no answer. And so fulfills a prophecy, Right? As a sheep goes, is before his shearers, silent, so he opened not his mouth. It wasn't until they got past all of those accusations and simply demanded, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? That's when he opens his mouth and says, I am. And that's when everyone throws up their arms in, in, in commotion, thinking, did you hear that? Did you hear that? There you have it. He did it to himself. He's a blasphemer. He's a blasphemer, a rabid blasphemer. And in their minds, that was reason enough to get rid of him. In their minds, that was actually reason enough to put him to death. But they had a problem. And the problem was they weren't supposed to perform executions. They had the Roman government looking over their shoulder. The Romans were the ones that held the cords of power. Executions were not something that they were permitted to do. Of course, that didn't always stop them, right? If you look in the book of Acts, you'll see them dragging Stephen out into the street and stoning him to death. Yeah, well, if they did it to Stephen, then why don't they do it to Jesus? But in the, you have to realize, in the case of Jesus, things needed to be done by the book. And one of the main reasons was Jesus was just far too high profile to deal with in that way. They knew that Jesus had gained just a tremendous following with people all over the land over the past three years. They couldn't just execute Jesus. They needed some power behind that. They needed some, some uh, authorization. They needed legitimacy to the accusations that they were throwing out. If they took the law into their own hands, they could have a major meltdown on their hands. A major riot could ensue. And the, gospel, the Gospels point out many, many times that these guys, the religious leaders, they were afraid of the people. We see that in Matthew 21. We see that in Mark 12. We see that in Luke 20. They were afraid. They didn't do this or they didn't do that because they were afraid of the people. And that's why they brought the Romans along when they went to arrest Jesus. I don't think they were so much afraid of, of Jesus but afraid of what the people might do 
when they arrest Jesus. That's why after questioning, they handed him back over to the guards. The guards began beating him. That's why, according to Mark 15, 1, they bound Jesus and led him over to Pilate. Now, looking at these religious leaders, you might be thinking, well, they're the ones to blame. These guys are the ones to blame. They, they seem to be the ones who are behind the scenes, pulling the levers and the strings and twisting arms and instigating and even maybe funding the chaos here. Is that where our focus should be? Should we really just be trying to get to the heart of the matter, identify who are the players behind the scenes? Should, should we see the injustice, the hypocrisy, the cool, calculated efforts of the people behind the curtain and kindle our righteous anger against them? Is that what Mark wants to do with his gospel? Is that what Christians are supposed to be doing today? We see injustices all over in our world. We start getting ideas of who might be doing this and who might doing, be doing that. And we're tempted to just be all about getting to the bottom of things. So we examine the evidence and we hunt down. We need to bring justice to people. Should we be doing that? Maybe. Maybe some of that. Maybe there are certain ones who should be doing that. Maybe, maybe not. I have no doubt that it's good to be informed. It's good to see through the dark things that are out there. It's good to see through the subtle schemes that are out there. It's good for us to help e keep each other from buying in to so many of the tricks and the lies that are out there. But generally speaking, is that our main mission to rise up and weed out those bad seeds behind the scenes? Or could it be that our main mission is the mission that Christ gave us? Remember, God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You know, I'll confess to you, um, there have been more times in my life where I have spent my efforts getting others riled and angry at the people that I think are to blame. I've done far more of that than I have getting on my knees and praying for their salvation and looking to God to bring justice. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Those haven't been my first motives. But here we have it. We have the religious leaders here. Then there's Pilate. It says they bound Jesus. They led him away. They delivered him over to Pilate. Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. With Tiberius as emperor, Pilate was the one who was put in place to make sure that that area was an area where Romans ruled. And so he made sure that people paid taxes. He made sure that uh, the law of the land was upheld. He also had control of the military in that area. And so when that arrest of Jesus took place, well, Pilate would have known about that. Because they would have had to gone to Pilate to get the cohort of soldiers to come along with them and arrest Jesus. Pilate's home base was on the Mediterranean coast. 
But because of the Passover festival that was going on, and Jerusalem was just swelling with crowds, tons and tons of people, it was really important for Pilate to be in Jerusalem, watchdogging everything that went on there, and really keeping up appearances that, hey, this land is controlled by Rome. Stay in line, people. Control was a big thing for the Romans. Big thing, maintaining control over a people like the Jews who were very passionate about their religious heritage, very passionate about their religious traditions, that was not an easy thing. On multiple occasions, the Romans had problems with their Jewish subjects, and Pilate was no exception. One time, he, he brought his soldiers into Jerusalem. He had them carrying banners, and they had emblems and flags bearing the image of Caesar, and that set people off. They said, this is idolatry. You've got graven images marching into the holy city. How dare you? And there was an uprising, and they protested outside of Pilate's headquarters for days Pilate threatened them with their lives. I'm going to bring my soldiers in. They're going to wipe you out. All I have to do is say the word. They're going to take you down. But Pilate knew that if he did that, well, that wasn't, that wasn't good diplomacy. That wasn't the right thing to do here. He knew that he had superiors back in Rome who might frown upon that. And so after a long standoff, he eventually caves. And he eventually says, okay, okay. We'll take the banners down. You win. On another occasion, the governor took possession of temple funds. He seized temple funds. He wanted to, uh, to start an aqueduct project. Well, the water's going to benefit the people. The water's going to benefit the land. It's only right that these people should have to pay for it. So he seized sacred money, and he started building. Boy, we've never seen anything like that, right? Never. A riot broke out. The people rioted, and the governor sought to quell the, the, the riot, but he didn't want to just send his soldiers in and, and put a stop to it. No, that would look bad. So he dressed his soldiers in, in, in common, everyday clothing. They went in among the rioters, and when they got in there, that's when they pulled out their clubs, and that's when they pulled out their swords, and they wreaked havoc on the rioters. Okay, you can kind of see how this guy works. Luke tells us in 13.1, there was another occasion where the governor butchered a group of Galilean Jews and he mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that were being made at the temple. He didn't have much respect for these people. He was going to get his way. It's not hard to see how this guy's approval ratings were just tanking. Pilate had a history of rash decisions. History of insecure leadership, history of brutality, seemed to be that kind of hot-headed guy, I dare you kind of guy. You will respect and you will obey Rome. And that often got him into trouble, and it put him in his relationship with his, the, his authorities in jeopardy. The Jews may not have had the ability to collect signatures for a recall here, but Pilate knew that if Caesar got wind of what was going on here, and if things got bad enough, then he could be taken out of his position at the drop of a hat. So we see here in Mark 15 that when the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate, 
it makes for a very sticky, another very sticky situation that the governor finds himself in. And he wastes no time asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Question would have been a bit threatening. And at the same time, it was kind of mocking to the people who were hoisting Jesus up before him. If Jesus declared himself the king of the Jews, well then, that would have meant that he was an enemy of Rome. Rome, Caesar is your king. He is your authority. He is your emperor. You can't have any other king. On the other hand, if Jesus was the king of the Jews, that would have been kind of a mocking jab to the religious leaders. This is your, this is your king? Really? This guy? And here you want me to kill your king? Take a look at the detail that John's gospel gives us in this conversation. John 18, says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is the truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. <laughs> After examining Jesus, Pilate didn't, didn't find anything worthy of capital punishment here. Jesus seems to be a curiosity to him. No threat here. Pilate had a dilemma on his hands. He knew that it was his job to uphold justice. And that meant in punishing the guilty, that meant protecting the innocent. But at the same time, he's got an angry mob of, 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 of annoying Jews demanding that he put Jesus to death. What's he going to do here? He'd be violating his office if he executed an innocent man. That would not be a good thing. And yet, he might very well be putting his political career to an end if he didn't prevent another Jewish kerfuffle. A catastrophe here. This is, I, I can't afford another problem here. And when he learns that Jesus was a Galilean, he says, Ah, I know what I can do. I can send him over to Herod Antipas, who is over that area. Really, this is Herod's jurisdiction. Now, Mark doesn't really give us the details of this. We get that from the other Gospels. Um, so we won't go get too much into that, only to say that he went to Herod, and Herod sent him right back to Pilate. He can't get rid of this problem. How, what am I going to do here? Pilate was in a difficult situation. Didn't want to touch Jesus. Don't want, to con don't want to kill an innocent man. In addition, his wife came to him. And he, she said, honey, don't have anything to do with this. I had a dream. I don't know if she was superstitious or he was superstitious, but... That plays into the mix here. He's got pressure on him. What is he going to do? It's messy. Something you want to get in the rearview mirror as soon as possible. And that's when a solution presents itself. Verse 6. 
Now the feast used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So to keep public relations in in Jerusalem going well here, Pilate would give clemency to one prisoner a year. One prisoner, the people's choice. You let me know who you want released. All right, I will be gracious. I will be generous to you, and I will release the person you want. This is perfect. Oh, my God. This is incredible. All I need to do is leave it up to the people, and then they're obviously going to choose Jesus because just a few days ago, they just praised him as he paraded in on that donkey. Don't you remember? They threw the coats down. They waved the palm branches. They shouted, Hosanna. This was their Messiah. Of course, they're, this is the solution. These religious leaders, yeah, they're, they're not going to like this, but the people are going to release Jesus for sure. Verse 9. He answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate was a lot of things, but he was no dummy. (laughs) He knew why the religious leaders had brought Jesus to him. It was because he was everything that they wanted to be but were not. (laughs) One pastor put it very, very simply. He said, he performed miracles. They could not. He proclaimed the truth. They did not. He was from God. They were not. And so seeing right through their motives, he makes the move to circumvent their wishes by handing it out to the people. Let's let the people decide. So let's consider the crowd for just a moment here. Verse 11. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate Again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, crucify him. Maybe these guys are the ones to blame. I think there's some blame to cast here. Yeah, the governor seems to be, have some serious lapses in integrity and leadership skills here, but this crowd seems downright bloodthirsty, don't they? The horde of ignorant, easily swayed drones who are so caught up in their own lives, blindly following anyone who sits behind a desk or has a title or a badge or a uniform. They're they're thirsty for a thrill, and they'll just parrot whatever the leaders tell them to say. What about them? Pilate at least seemed reluctant to do any harm to Jesus. This group seems to have no problem taking full responsibility for Jesus' death. Matthew 7, uh, 27, 25, the crowd goes so far as to say, his blood be on us and on our children. Wow. This must have been shocking for Pilate. <laughs> he thought he was off the hook. He thought that he had figured out a way to silence these religious buffoons and, and, and get off scot-free. But no, somehow, some way, they were able to infect the crowd with their poisonous hatred for Jesus. Maybe it's the crowd that deserves the blame. 
Maybe it's the uninformed, the gullible, the easily swayed crowd that should be held responsible. After all, they said themselves, they'll gladly accept the blame. Maybe the lesson from Mark 15, 1 to 15, is that all of us who are members of the crowd, we just need to take things more seriously here. Maybe we need to do a far better job of educating ourselves on the issues. Maybe we need to do some more reading, maybe some more research. Maybe we should uh, campaign a little bit more and, 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 and really help inform the public so they can make good decisions when they come to the voting booths. Maybe we should be all about that rather than letting those campaign ads that we see on TV make the decisions for us. Hmm. A lot of injustice going on here. Injustice going on with the religious leaders. That's obvious. Injustice taking place with Pilate. You see, rather than taking responsibility and just doing the right thing because it's the right thing, he cares more about preserving his seat of power. Clearly, it's an injustice that the people would blindly follow the suggestions of their leaders and demand the death of an innocent man in exchange for the life of a convicted criminal. Lots of injustice. Oh, and then there's the criminal. Barabbas was guilty, was he not? Mark says he was one of the rebels. He was an insurrectionist. Not only that, he was actually a murderer. John 18.40 also tells us he was a robber. It's not unlikely that rather than Jesus, it should have been Barabbas going to the cross and hanging there with the other two robbers that were crucified that day. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this man was guilty. He deserved to be locked up. He deserved to be punished. We don't know if he was for Jesus or he was against Jesus. We don't know anything about him, really, other than the fact that he was guilty and a couple of things that he did. He doesn't do anything in this passage. He doesn't say anything in this passage. And yet, he's the one who goes free. Jesus' life is exchanged for his Jesus ends up subbing in and bearing the punishment that he deserved. That's interesting, right? Should our focus be on Barabbas? Clearly, there's injustice going on here. Everyone in this passage contributes to injustice. We could point fingers at all of them, and we could do it all day long. They're all guilty. They're all perpetuators of injustice, and there may be a lesson or two that we could take away from that, ways that each of them behave that we could learn from, and yet I think that if we do that and let that be our sole focus, we miss something of what Mark really wants us to see. While everyone else is responsible for injustice, Jesus, on the other hand, is the bearer the recipient of injustice. He's the one who receives it. He's the one who endures it. And isn't that the whole point? Later on at Pentecost, Peter would stand up in front of a massive crowd of people and he would say this. He'd say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. 
And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. We are witnesses, he said. You, you look around. You are witnesses to what the person next to you said, what they cried out. We are witnesses of the tremendous injustice that has been done here. And yet through this horrible injustice, through the horrible injustice, God would carry out the justice that you and I and the crowd and all of us deserve. And he would carry it out on the innocent son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is to say that God makes us clean. He takes away our guilt. He takes away our punishment, all of the things that we deserve because of our sin, and he puts that on Jesus that we might now stand clean and forgiven. In Peter's first letter, he tells, uh, he tells this, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Isn't it interesting that the release of the prisoner Barabbas gives us actually a picture of what Jesus accomplished for us? Isn't it interesting? Just like Jesus hung on the cross on which Barabbas probably should have hung, he should have been crucified there, so Jesus also endured the punishment that was yours, that was mine, as he stood in as our substitute. This is a terrible injustice. We hate injustice. The death of Jesus is the result of dark hearts, is the result of bad motives, selfish desires, outright failures of so many people. From our vantage point, we look at the players involved in this passage, we can confidently point fingers and call them all guilty. They all contributed to a horrible, horrible injustice. And yet we can see that through the evil intents and actions of people, God was working. God was bringing about, unbeknownst to the crowd, his awesome plan from before the foundation of the world, but promised very, very early on, as we saw in our study of Genesis. And he brings about the culmination of this plan to save guilty rebels like you and like me, people who have turned their backs on their creator, who have gone their own way, people who have chosen to follow their own dark hearts rather than follow God's commands for us. And we look at, when we look at the incredible work that God accomplishes through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can see that even though gross injustices have been committed, no denying that, he was in control bringing about justice the entire time. 
What Joseph declared to his brothers in Genesis 50-20, that rings true here, doesn't it? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Through the greatest injustice of all time, God brought about our greatest and one and only hope. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that salvation that Jesus offered, that's available today for all who would look to him, who would trust in him, and believe in what he has accomplished. The Bible says if you simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Not may be saved, you will be saved. That's the way it works. Pilate didn't know it. But the question that he asks here is the question that every single person must ask themselves, and that is, what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? It's a question for each and every one of us. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? There's really only three choices, actually more like two. Either you reject him. You just say, I, I don't want him, I don't need him, I got my own things, I got my own agenda, I got my own life to live. Thank you very much. Reject him. Or maybe you choose to ignore him, which is essentially the same thing as rejecting him, because Jesus said in John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in, whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so, rejecting, ignoring, it's really the same thing. And then there's the third choice. You acknowledge him for who he is, the Savior of the world. You can believe that just like he did for Barabbas, that he stood in and took the punishment that you deserve. That by believing in his name, your sins are, are forgiven. Your relationship with God is restored, and that your future with him in heaven and with all his people, that that is secured. Have you decided what you're going to do with Jesus? If you haven't, the time for you to do it is right now. If you haven't, your entire life has been leading up to this moment where you can cross the line of faith and know with certainty that what Jesus accomplished on the cross through his death and through his resurrection, that has been applied to your life. You know, the only times that I won't, don't want justice is when justice is coming after me. <laughs> and we know that because of all the injustices that we have committed in our lives, that we're all deserving of God's justice on ourselves. And according to the Bible, the only way to escape that justice is not to live, it's not to live an oppressive life. It's not to give an, enough money to charity. It's not to be kind to your neighbors. It's not to do any of those things. It's simply about what happened 2,000 years ago, on a cross, when the greatest injustice of all time was committed, would you turn your eyes to Jesus? Would you look to him? 
Would you see him as your one and only hope and trust that he has taken your sins upon himself and they are paid for in full. Many of us have already placed our trust in Christ. How do we look out at a world that is replete with injustice? Every single time I turn on the news in the morning and I turn on the news at night and I check my apps during the day, I see injustice after injustice after injustice, and I am right there with you. I get riled and I get angry. And everything inside of me wants to fix this somehow. What can I do? What do we do with injustice? You know, Mark 6.34 told us how Jesus looked at the crowd. It It says, when he looked out at the crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you remember what Jesus said from the cross? Maybe you do if, you know, if, you've, if you've been in Sunday school. He looked down at all of those who were looking up at him. He looked down on those who had his blood on their hands. And he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. As we look out at countless injustices that are happening in our world, our tendency is to be filled with that righteous anger, condemning spirits. But if we are truly in Christ, then I think just like his heart broke with compassion for lost people that were guilty, that our hearts should break. Injustice is a terrible thing. No doubt about it. And I believe that we should do all that is right and good and within our power to eliminate injustices that we see in our world. This is not to say that we are people who shut the shades, close the doors, and put on happy music and pretend like the world is all okay and it's all going to be taken care of. No, we are here, we are representatives, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ on this planet, and we can stand for truth. We need to keep ourselves informed. We need to be reading good books. Good books. There are so many authors out there that are not good to read. We need to be discerning in what we read. We need to have good conversations with others. Not just conversations where we just want to prove that we are right and they are wrong because we listen to this newscast and they listen to that one. No, we have good conversations. We want to learn and we want to direct. We want to love our neighbors well. By walking across the lawn, but by also casting our votes even though we may think that our vote doesn't count because we're far outnumbered wherever we live, even though we declare our love and care for our neighbor when we get up and we cast votes, 
and we need to take stands for what is right and against what is wrong. But let's not forget what Jesus accomplished in the midst of great injustice. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As those who have had our own injustices forgiven, may our first desire be to see more and more people just like us. People, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. People who are following the desires of their heart. People who are living for self. People who are neglecting, mistreating, and abusing others. Doing what is right in their own eyes. May our first desire be that their eyes might be open to the truth of the gospel and experience that same forgiveness and transformation and soul-filling, infusing joy that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we... I am in awe of what you did through Jesus. Because if I was in your place and I saw the horrific, scandalous trial and counsels that were taking place that led up to Jesus Christ going on the cross, I would not be able to control myself. Thank you, Lord that through the horrible injustices that have been done in our world, that you are working. And that, Lord, as people now who have been redeemed, who have tasted and seen that you are good, who have experienced forgiveness in our own lives, and now stand, even though we are fully deserving of guilt, Lord, we are no longer guilty. We stand righteous and clean and holy because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we stand and we look out at our world, may we be reminded who is really in control. May we be reminded that just like you were working 2,000 years ago in the midst of horror, that you are working even now. And we are your representatives here, called to proclaim the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. First and foremost, Lord, may we be people of good news. May we be people who point to Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you use us in wherever we can, however you may, Lord, to right wrongs, to lead towards justice, to see peace abound, to see relationships restored, to see right done in our world. But Lord, as things go, as you have said they must go, may we trust you. May we not panic. May we not give in to fear. May we instead, in the midst of chaos, be praising you and thanking you, the only true sovereign in existence. 
And may we long for the day when we will see you face to face. When Jesus Christ comes and he restores justice and every tongue confesses and every knee bows to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.